0: Deuteronomy 30 verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. The whole of Deuteronomy is pointing us and rushing to this point in our series Starting last September, we've kind of been leading up to this apex, this moment, where this decision is put before the people of God. And the choice that confronts the generation to whom Moses is speaking on the edge of the promised land is a choice that confronts every subsequent generation of God's people up to the present day. Notice for a moment that the people to whom Moses is speaking are the saved by grace people of God. They've been redeemed and rescued out of slavery in Egypt and brought to this new point in their lives with a beautiful future laid out before them in the promised land. And Moses says, in light of that grace, choose life. Choose to go this way. It's impossible to read the final words of Moses' appeal in this third third and final speech, and not to be affected and stirred and moved to consider our own lives. And what direction we're moving and walking in today. And the effect of that present day consideration of this choice is heightened in the text itself by blanking on Israel's response. There is no record in Deuteronomy of Israel's response to this great choice that has been set before them. Which leaves this question open-ended for all subsequent generations who come across these words in Deuteronomy. Which way will we choose? It's a choice between life and death. Moses lays that out clearly in verse 15, that that's what he's setting out before them. Life and good on the one hand, death and evil on the other. In verse 19, it's life and death on the one hand, or life and blessing on the one hand, death and curse on the other. This isn't a paper or plastic kind of decision. It's not even a to marry or not to marry kind of decision. It's the most critical and the most significant and determinative choice of our lives. Literally, life or death hang in the balance. So confronted with that choice, then the question is, so how do we choose life according to this text? And Moses' answer, this is not a complicated text. Given our time up up in Deuteronomy up to this point, it should be quite expected. His answer, verse 16, is straightforward obeying the commandments of the Lord by loving the Lord walking in his ways and keeping his commandments statutes and rules or in verse 20 it's by loving the Lord obeying his voice and then he uses this expression of holding fast to him because he is your life this choice that we are confronted with by the book of Deuteronomy permeates and is worked out in every level of our life of our being It flows out from the heart, thus the language of loving and of holding fast. But it also is expressed at the level of our hands and our feet and our words and our actions, daily choices. It's comprehensive from the inside all the way out. The picture that Moses gives here is of complete and wholehearted obedience to the Lord that has rescued them. It's this, Moses says, this is what brings life. This is what it means to choose life. The greater Moses, actually, no surprise, agrees. Jesus. As we saw in our reading from Mark's gospel this morning, he says that to have life requires losing our lives, giving them up completely to him, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following him as Lord. Jesus is incredibly explicit. He says we cannot have life by saving our lives holding them back from his rule and lordship. It's in losing our lives for his sake and for the sake of the gospel, which is turning them over completely and comprehensively to him, that we find life paradoxically that we live. To make the opposite choice, Jesus says, is to resist his call and his claim upon our lives as our rightful Lord, and then to cling to life on our world's terms. To have another Lord be that, the Lord of ourself, or one of the many idols of our age. And to have another Lord other than Jesus is actually to lose life, or in some ways, to put it in the terms of this choice in Deuteronomy 30, it is to choose death. Moses has said the same thing in verse 17. He says, But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. He tells us that this choice of death is the result of the heart turning away and being drawn to serving and worshiping other gods, which, if we remember in Deuteronomy, is a clear violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, that in many ways sums up the whole of God's intent for his people's lives. And that's the question that this final exhortation that Moses gives to the people in Deuteronomy drives home, to that generation and to us, the subsequent generations of God's people. Will God be your God? Or will someone or something else? To be clear for a moment, the worship and the service of other gods rarely feels like death. It feels like life. It promises freedom and life to us may feel like satisfaction to do what everyone else is doing at school or at work to fit in with the crowd around us feels good people will like us more they may praise us maybe we'll be popular and we all like these things there's something deep in us they stroke something that's deep inside of us a need for um, a need for affection a need for being liked a need for the approval of others It's no wonder that in Jesus' version of this choice that confronts the people of God in Mark 8, that he ends with words about not being ashamed of him. He knows that to follow him in the midst of this, what he says is an adulterous and sinful generation, will make us stick out like a sore thumb. And the question that's driving underneath that account is, am I worth it? Is he worth it? No, the heart that turns away, according to verse 17, is not looking for death at all. And it may not be looking to insult or even to offend the God who has rescued them. Sure, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes uh, we want to offend God. But usually turning away is far more subtle than this in our lives. Idols, other gods, promise flourishing. And the heart that turns away is captivated by this alternate view of what human flourishing is meant to be or is. Faustus sells his soul to the devil not to be miserable, but to be great, to have life, and to have it in the fullness that he understands to be full. The battleground for the human soul is in many ways summed up as a battleground over, a vision, over visions of human flourishing. The serpent's approach in the garden was very clearly this, to present a different path to flourishing, to Adam and Eve. Take this fruit, and it won't diminish your life. You will become like God. You will be greater than you ever could have dreamed that you could be without it. And it worked in that case. This is really the only strategy that idols have. With our hearts to promise us flourishing of some other kind, to woo us by that flourishing, and to get us to turn away from the one true God. A number of months ago, I was talking to a very wealthy man that I've known for a number of years, who is an agnostic, and we've had some conversations about faith, And in that conversation, he was acknowledging that in my line of work as a minister, that I must have given up the pursuit of money or of, of great wealth. To which I responded, Well, you know, that is true. (laughs) But uh, I don't think that money really, I said to him, "I, I really don't think that money gives us what it promises. And to which he replied, Money brings me freedom. He drives a Ferrari, he has lots of other incredible kinds of toys, he has four or five different homes. Money brings me freedom. And if, if I could finish his statement to me, it would be this. The freedom, and we might add the security and the power and the popularity that money brings is the way of flourishing that I deem to be what it means to flourish. That's what I'm pursuing. I don't want to be diminished. That's not why I'm pursuing this. I want to be alive. And that's why I pursue this. So I serve it. I pursue it. I love it. When the Indian Sadhu Sundar Singh, in the early 20th century, a native of India, was, visited the Christian West, the European West, in the early 20th century, he was sorely disappointed with what he observed in Western culture. He expected to find a richness and depth among Christians. Instead, listen to his observation. He said, quote, here in the West, I see everywhere people who seem to think about nothing but pleasure, money and material comfort." His friend and biographer Charlie Andrews said this about his visits, he had expected to see the spirit of Christ transforming the western nations, but he found everywhere comfort, money, luxury and the things of the world. He had hoped to come into close touch with a life of Christian prayer and devotion, but he found instead noise and frantic haste, we have no idea what he's talking about, which left no time for meditation. He compared man's life without prayer to an animal existence. Saudi Sundar Singh said, Men in the West are so busy that they have left prayer out of their lives altogether. The reality is that other paths of human flourishing have deeply penetrated the Western European cultures that he visited. And they've certainly deeply penetrated our own culture in the 21st century. What was true 100 years ago when he made those observations is no doubt as true, if not truer, today than it was then. And I wonder, perhaps, just to do some exploratory thinking with you for a moment, if if these are the reasons that sometimes, even in the church, we don't experience life as we find it promised here by Moses in Deuteronomy 30, by Jesus in Mark 8 even as we claim to know and to have life in Christ, it's at least possible that we're bowing the knee to other visions of human flourishing, which then contaminate God's way of life that he promises to give to us, so much so that we don't experience it. This is why God says we're not to have any other gods before him. We're not to pursue any other vision of flourishing instead of this vision of coming under his sovereign, gracious, merciful, compassionate, fatherly care. For us as his children to have any other idols any other competing gods to which we bow down and offer our allegiance is to forsake the one true God and this is why introspection and self-examination and subsequent repentance are regular patterns of the Christian life because it's so easy for those other paths of flourishing to become our own for us to try to put one foot on one and one foot on the other And so a part of the wisdom of the church throughout the ages is to encourage us down this path of examination of our own hearts to determine where we have gone astray. Pascal, the uh, 17th century mathematician and all-around genius, French genius, made the keen observation that everything human beings do, they do to be happy. He says they, they do nothing other than what they think will achieve that end. We want to flourish. We serve what we think will lead to flourishing. But the flourishing offered by idols from the biblical perspective, whether from Moses or Jesus or David or Paul, it just never arrives. It never comes. It's always an empty promise. It's always a counterfeit pleasure. It never delivers. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man says Proverbs 20:17 but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel It may taste good initially it may feel like satisfaction or flourishing initially but the biblical perspective is it never lasts it ultimately destroys us and diminishes who we are Moses urges God's people and he urges us then Uh, he urges us to choose life. Reject the lies of idolatry. Give exclusive allegiance to the God of Israel. Don't let your heart turn away and give your life to him. That's the same thing that Jesus calls us to and that and that alone from the perspective of the biblical witness and Deuteronomy is the path to true blessing and true life. So how can we choose it? As we think about this choice that we face how, how can we make this choice in our daily lives as the saved by grace redeemed people of God not just once but every day at every new moment of decision how can we make this choice and here I want to bring in for, for a moment just a wider lens on the broader perspective of the rest of Deuteronomy and say three things about this we, we first start by remembering where we came from Moses recurringly uh, repeatedly says it throughout Deuteronomy Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt and God rescued you and brought you to this wonderful place and now is bringing you into the promised land. We've talked about many times the prologue of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Moses says, remember where you've come from. Remember that you were in despair and and, and guilt and shame and that by the mercy and wonder and great love of God that you've been set free from those things. That you're no longer in bondage to those things and that you have a new life in Jesus. Remember where we've come from. We've moved from bondage to freedom, from despair to hope, from guilt and shame to forgiveness, from angst to joy, from loneliness to belonging. And as we consider the next choice that confronts us, what it is, whatever it is maybe this afternoon, the next step that we're taking in, light, in life, we need to do so in light of where we have come from. There will be no progress in the Christian life apart from a robust memory. It's no accident that we tell and visibly symbolize the story of our redemption each week as we gather together as the people of God to remember where we've come from, what we've been brought through. So we need to remember where we've come from, And that leads to a second thing. To choose life, we not only remember this, but we also know who we belong to. Because God has not just rescued us out of slavery in Egypt or out of slavery in sin, but he has now subjected us under his almighty hand and care. And Moses reminds God's people of this in chapter 7. He talks about them as a treasured possession. They are the treasured possession of this God who has rescued them. There are holy people that have been set apart and brought into his life. And now they belong to him. Do we know that our lives are not our own? That we, that we were in the language of the New Testament bought with a price. That our life belongs to another. So remember where we've come from. Remember who we belong to. And lastly, remember that he is good and that he is our life. Verse 20, Moses says this, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. And not only that he is our life, but that he longs for us to know and experience the fullness of life. Do you wonder what God's intentions are toward you? We never have to wonder. We never have to guess at the answer to that question. God has declared once and for all that he wants his people to have, to experience, to know the fullness of life. In Deuteronomy that fullness of life is pictured for us in the law that Moses gives from chapter 5 all the way up to chapter 28. It's a picture of what life is meant to be under God's lordship, under his kingship. And it's beautiful, it's a picture of of joyful worship. It's a picture of generosity. It's a picture of caring for the rights of those who are destitute or marginalized. It's a picture of a beautiful society where every human being's right to life and to the fruitfulness of the land is protected and preserved. That, Moses says, this is God's path for flourishing. This is what it looks like. And it's elsewhere summed up by Jesus' as loving God and loving neighbor. And God, by making this path clear to them, shows his intentions for them are, in fact, life. That's what this passage right before the one we've been looking at that we read earlier in, intends to communicate. It says, don't say that this is, this is up in heaven, that you, that you can't find it, or that it's beyond the sea, that you don't know it. But the word is very near you, Moses says. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. In other words, I've given, God, this is God speaking, I've given you my picture of flourishing. I've laid it out before you clearly so that you can know it and you can grasp it and you can walk with it. You don't have to go on some extravagant journey to find it. You don't have to go up to the heavens to find it. I've brought it to you. I've laid it before you. Because I love you and I want you to live. And what's so beautiful and amazing about this is that Paul picks up this passage in Romans 10 and says that the fulfillment of the word being brought near to us is actually the word. It's Christ. He quotes this passage from Deuteronomy 30 in Romans 10 and says that it's Christ who has come near. Don't say that you have to go up to heaven to bring Christ down or that you have to go down to bring Christ up. He's come. The word has been made known to you. And God's intent and picture of human flourishing that he gave to us in the law, if you want to think of that, it's kind of like black and white television from the 60s. But Jesus is high def, full resolution, full color of God's path for human flourishing. And he's laid it before us and said, this is the way to life. This is the embodiment of the law. So Christ in Romans 10 is the fulfillment or the telos, the end, the completion of the law. And not only does he show us the fullness of what it means to be truly human, but he, by virtue of his death and resurrection, enables us to experience the circumcision of the heart that we needed in order that we can now fully and freely in the power of his spirit begin to walk in that life day by day. God's intentions for us are life. Remember where you've come from. Remember who you belong to. And remember that he's good, that he is your life, and that he wants you so deeply to know and have life. And here's when you need to remember these things. It's later today when you're making a decision. It's tomorrow at the office. Choose life. When that decision, wouldn't it be great? We can't really do this. Wouldn't it be great if before every decision that we had to make, we just said something like, okay, I was a sinner and I've been saved by grace. I belong to God and God wants me to have life. So now how am I going to make the decision I'm facing right now? What an overwhelming motivation then. To forsake those other paths of flourishing. To forsake those other idols and to choose life when you have an opportunity in your company to take a little bit of money out of the company that nobody else will notice, nobody's going to find out, choose life. When you can stand up for the rights and well-being of those people who are on the margins instead of playing it safe and being quiet and maintaining respectability among the crowd, choose life. When you have an opportunity to find sexual pleasure outside of the covenant of marriage, with a girlfriend or boyfriend or internet pornography or, or YouTube videos. Remember these things and choose life. When you now have an opportunity to be generous, choose life. When you can include the stranger or the alien or the widow or the lonely in your warm holiday festivities, Remember where you came from. Remember who you belong to. Remember his intentions to you for good. Expressed in Christ and choose life. When you're faced with a relational difficulty and you have the possibility of descending into anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and revenge, or to take the pain of that relationship upon yourself and offer The freedom of forgiveness. Choose life. Moses says, I've set before you today life and death. Blessing and curse. Flourishing and diminishment. We face that choice every day. Every hour. And God pleads with us. us, As our gracious father. Who's expressed his intentions unambiguously. In the cross of Jesus. I love you. I care for you. I've put my spirit in you. Choose life.